Live from Fort Yuma, where we are waiting for the noon stage heading west. This is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 275, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Becca. Today we're going to discuss paper color varieties of the US postal stationery and postal cards. Oh, thank the maker. We'll get right on that. But first, <laughs> we have a letter from a good friend of the show, Dan W., who also used a Trump stamp and a U.S. graffiti art stamp on his envelope. Yes, two of my favorite stamps now, uh, Trump uh, stamp and uh, the wonderful graffiti stamp that we discussed prior. Dan wrote, one minor cash correction is that Iowa was not hit by a tornado, but by something called a derecho. Basically, a line of wind shears. Derecho? It's been a long time since we've got to use that, so either you're getting better or no one's calling you out. Yeah, that's true. No more cash corrections. Except for this one. Yeah. The Des Moines Register wrote, Security footage at Schottenkirk Chevrolet captured the chaos of a sudden storm that created a tornado in Waukee. So that. But then I found a wiki entry that says, The August 2020 Midwestern Derrico was a severe... Derrico? Derrico. Derrico. How is it pronounced? In Nevada, it's Derrico. Well, that's because we pronounce it Nevada. Derecho. Derecho? It's Derecho. Was a severe weather event that took place from August 10th to 11th, 2020, across the Midwestern United States. The Derecho. <laughs> caused notably widespread high winds, some extreme, some extreme, and spawned an outbreak of low category tornadoes. So maybe you weren't. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You weren't completely wrong. Wait, 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 wait. Read that. Read the last part of that sentence again. Derecho. Low category tornadoes. Yes. So. Like. Do we have, do we have to retract the retraction? I'm not sure. Keep reading. In addition, certain areas reported torrential rain and large hail. Damage was moderate to severe across much of the affected area as wind speeds of 70 miles per hour, which is 110 kilometers per hour or 31 meters per second, were prevalent, often sustaining themselves for half an hour or more. The greatest damage occurred in eastern Iowa, where the highest wind speeds were recorded, and northwestern Illinois, where the most tornadoes touched down. Hold on, hold on. And there what were, what there, was that in, word? In northwestern Illinois, there were more motorhome parks. Oh. Well, we'll, we'll read, the, read those last three words again. Most of the tornadoes touched down. Tornadoes? 
I do not think this is a cash correction. De Rachel. <laughs> I am well, we can take a vote. <laughs> you don't get to vote because there's six of us here. So there's, we can have a vote. Is this a cash correction or not? By show of hands. Yeah, so nobody can see it. <laughs> no, no, we can look because we have a YouTube. Oh yes, we have a YouTube it. now. I'm, I'm, I'm voting. See, Cash, see, Cash voted that he was wrong. He raised his hand. <laughs> nah. Uh-huh. So, it was a derecho. <laughs> derecho. But that caused tornadoes. Ah. Uh. So if there was no derecho. De- <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the way she pronounces it. Dan also wrote, Scott's lists a lot of tagging omitted errors for U.S. stamps, and some of these have higher catalog value. Are there any stamps out there that you would recommend everyone to go place under the UV light to examine? Are tagging omitted stamps worth looking for? Well... Clearly, they're worth looking for because people pay money for them. Um, how common are they? Well, since most people don't use tagging lights to look for tagging, uh, they have the potential to be more common than you think. But I certainly, if it's something you're interested in, it's not a visual kind of error because you do need a tagging light to see it. But... Uh, and they do enhance a collection if you have them. But at the same time, if you're trying to present your collection, share your collection with a non-collector, they're going to ask, well, why do you have two stamps that look the same? So, yeah, they're worth looking for if you just want to find one and sell it. Um, I had a block of C76, which is the uh, moon landing stamp. And that one carries, I think, a $950 catalog value mint for tagging omitted. Whoa. And uh, I broke the block. It wasn't completely tagging omitted, so I broke the block. Well, actually, it was. I broke the block, but two of the stamps had disturbed gum. Mm. So, By, de- um, by definition, can a uh, tagging omitted be only on part, on part of a sheet? Absolutely. Um, I broke up a... I, well, I know a dealer who broke up a sheet, and uh, t- uh, I think uh, two and a half columns. It was a commemorative, so they were 50 on a sheet, on a pane. And uh, two and a half columns were tagging omitted, and the other two and a half had tagging. So he split them into strips of five so that you would see... The two left stamps had tagging. The two right stamps did not have tagging, and the one in the middle had half of it tagged. Wow, that's and he cool. sold he sold them that way. And uh, but you know they didn't necessarily have a, a high catalog value, maybe forty dollars a stamp. But because he had two and a half, or two completely tagging omitted stamps, he was able to sell the strips for about one hundred and fifty dollars each. So. Uh, it is worth looking for. Um, I think a lot of the catalog values, the ones that have low catalog values, seem to have not been updated in many, many years, possibly even decades, and uh, which is why they show might show a five or a ten dollar catalog value. 
whereas today I think they might be uh, a bit more. Because every year when I go through and I review the catalog listings, uh, a lot of price changes that I see in the in the 20th century of tagged stamps, the tagging omitted errors seem to have price adjustments as they are sold. They're not frequent sellers. There's not a whole lot of dealers who carry a big box of errors. And uh, even if a dealer does carry errors, they don't generally have a whole bunch of them because mm. there's no dealer that really specializes in them since Jacques Schiff closed down his auctions that I'm aware of anyway. And uh, so I, w- I would say, yes, they do have value. Yes, it's a good investment on a tagging light. If you have the time and the material to go through, absolutely get a tag light. I've, I've found a few. Unfortunately, they were, the, they were the ones listed as 10 bucks. <laughs> but uh, absolutely, um, I think they enhance a collection for the collector anyway. Well, also looking for tagging omitted is a way to find counterfeit stamps on cover, too. Well, the modern ones, absolutely. Yep. And those have, in my opinion, significant value. You know, people want to find them used. I want to find well, them Well, I, I think there aren't a whole lot of... Not a whole lot of collectors, um, especially at the beginning and intermediate levels that are willing to put counterfeit stamps in their collection knowingly. Yeah, that's true. Um, it takes a, a an advanced collector or a higher level intermediate collector that's going to start to add that type of material to their collection that is going to be after those. And I just don't see a whole lot of uh, uptick in that sort of thing being being looked for at this time no because we were just ne- we're waiting i've never heard stuff. of yeah. i've never heard of faked tagging okay yeah because you would, you would think that uh the people that are counterfeiting modern postage would be the ones that yeah. would want to fake the tagging. you would think but the tagging mm-hmm. is basically it's either a chemical that's embedded in the paper making process right a coating that's put on the paper or it's an actual ink that's printed just like any other ink mm-hmm. on the stamp. So those are your three options. Right. And uh, generally paper with that high phosphor content that is specifically for stamps is a controlled commodity, just like the paper for making U.S. currency mm. is a controlled commodity. So uh, that would that's probably one of the reasons. And, and it can be pricey. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of the counter most or basically all the counterfeits you see don't pass the tagging test. And so they put the tagging so that the machines can deter- de- detect postage. Right. Well, it's basically for the face or canceller. It makes sure that the uh, the envelope is faced the right direction so that the stamp actually receives the cancel. Right. Um, and then if it doesn't have it or it can't figure out which corner, say if you used an envelope, what happened to my? If you use an envelope that uh, is has a high bright quality to it that confuses the canceller, it can kick it out, even if it has a stamp on it because it can't tell where the stamp is. I uh, read in Lynn's uh, recently where a, a Great Britain stamp of uh, I think it was uh, Sherlock Holmes, they were using tagging to uh, hide clues um, that were printed on the stamp, and you had to have a tagging light to see the clue. Ah, yeah, the, the postal USPS had uh, a period of a couple, a year and a half or two years where they had hidden images 
And, yeah, yeah. And, and you had to get their little stamp decoder lens to be able to see them. Well, that was a kind of a thing for kids, wasn't it? It was. See, I like the things. I mean, you want to talk about tagging. I like the things that uh, Canada's been doing. Like they had their um, big, giant blue whale stamp, and it was tagged, but it was tagged so that there was red tagging in front of the blue whale that was to represent the krill that it was feeding on, and then there was a little bright green scuba diver yeah, I that was tagged that. on it. And it was like, now that is a cool use of tagging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, last number of years of the uh, federal duck stamps here in the States, they've, uh, they have tagging. And uh, what's interesting is they use like a, lacquer, a lacquered type of ink when they print those stamps, but they have a tagging component that they uh, put underneath the main image usually. Why would they put it on duck stamps? Because normally you use them just to, you use them on well, your hunting licenses, right? But uh, it's it's a collector thing, I guess. And what I found was uh, when you look at the plate number, one of the plate number digits is actually printed with the tagging ink. Yeah, I've seen. Yeah, and I had to, and I knew that, but then I started paying attention to the updates for the. Uh, U.S. Stamp Society, who keeps the, the records of all the plate numbers, and they had missed it because nobody thought to check a duck stamp for tagging, And I, <laughs> but I knew. And so I contacted them, and they had to go back and correct, I think, three years' worth of records and add that extra digit in because it is there. It's just, and it, again, this year, there's a one digit that's in tagging ink, so you do have to check. And it's kind of neat because they're in different, the tagging isn't just like a block or something. It's it's actually like the shape of the duck, or a lot of times it's an outline around the duck, or things like that. They do different things with it. So I have something really interesting that I uh, just got to look at. I think it was yesterday, and a customer sent in two stamps and sent in an article that I never heard about. So uh, it says, Census Help Requested. This is from uh, Coil Line Magazine from July of this year. It said, John Himes and Dan Forgs have agreed to conduct a census of Scott of the Scott 484 through, four, I'm sorry, 4894 through 4897 red, white, and blue flag strip with plate number C11 or C12 that glows bright yellow under shortwave UV light. The census also applies to the single Scott 4896 used PS1 with those same plate numbers. These stamps normally glow bright white color under shortwave UV light, and those are fairly common. The ones that grow yellow-green appear to be quite rare, and some have been selling on eBay for upwards of $500. John and Jan are trying to understand how rare these yellow-green glowing copies are. And it goes on to say, if you have a copy, you know, send it to them and, you know, so on and so forth, because they're trying to conduct a census. And it's actually got, you know, two pictures of what they're saying under the tagging light. So the customer had sent in three stamps. One is a um, reference and a C11 and a C12 plate number. I've never heard of someone considering bright white being a tagging color. That's usually just paper brighteners, yeah? Yes. So So, it seems seems to me that it's either tagged or untagged in error. 
depending on what the basic stand is. I, Obviously, I the basic stand is I put them under. I put them under the microscope, and all three of the tags, the reference and that, and the two submitted were all tagged, but it was very faint tagging. So, and I don't think these had a tagging omitted variety listed in the catalog, so I thought, I'm like... Well, it could be just the concentration of the tagging ink. Yeah, and I think it was, because it was just very low. You could see it all over the stamp, but without putting it under the microscope with the with the UV light, you know, if you just held it over it, it doesn't really look very tagged. Right. But you can see all the tagging under the light, and I actually, um, I'll see if I can print out pictures here, because I don't have a color printer at my house uh took some pictures to the microscope with my phone to show it but it's just a it's just a really interesting thing that to think that there's somebody out there that's considering a bright white any anytime you use tagging ink it can be just like any other color you can have uh an over inking or an under inking um without it actually being omitted or uh but you can have basically super saturated or or well, we've had Very those light. before where a right. person had uh, submitted a tagging omitted and we put it under there and it looked like well, sometimes sort of tagging splatter. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a little splatter as, as it runs out, so it can't be considered tagging omitted, but it's it's still a freak that's that can be collected as uh, almost. Yeah, but freaks versus air, uh, errors, printing th- errors is a uh, Well, there's a big, big difference. Pri- a yeah. big price difference, but... Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you don't want to spend a thousand dollars on a tagging omitted error, getting one that's almost yep. for for you know thirty bucks could be an option for somebody on a budget that really wants to have one. That goes for the things like the perforations omitted too. Yeah, because yep. a lot of those you'll you know you can see the little ghost lines. And sorry, yeah. it went through the process. Right. They didn't get punched all the way, but right. Now another note: since we've been talking about tagging, the uh, airmails uh, were tagged in an orange tagging color early on to basically to differentiate them from the regular postage, and uh, that was dropped eventually. But the orange tagging, a lot of times, is either faint or difficult to see if you have any outside light source providing light in your work area. And so a lot of times we'll get those submitted as tagging omitted. But as soon as we look at them in the proper condition, you can clearly see that they're tagged. So I've had, I've had some of the red, ta- the red-orange tagging stuff where I've actually I turn off my desk light and even the mo- light from the computer monitor is too bright. I have to put them under my desk and look at them, you know, right. under the desk to really see right. that red-orange. Right. So um, it's just something to be aware of when you're – Tagging U.S. early tagged U.S. airmails, especially that, the red airmails. Yeah, the ones with the red tagging. It can be a little bit uh, difficult to see, but with a little experience, you can learn to uh, be more proficient with that. So, uh, well, and that's also the era where they were kind of experimenting with it. So, I think it's C fifty nine to C, I believe sixty nine, where. It's not tagged or tagging omitted. It's either tagged or untagged. Right, they were and issued some, both ways. Yeah, and some of them came. Some of them, the the main Scott listing is a tagged variety with the the small letter being untagged, and some of them it's the opposite. Yeah, there's there's some regular issues in the 
that are also that way. They were issued both tagged or untagged. And some kind, sometimes it's on the same day. Sometimes it's one or two days apart. Uh, and I mean, it was, and a lot of times the one variety was listed or was uh, issued in smaller quantities. Sometimes they're issued in the same quantities or similar quantities. So that can also depend, determine a price. But yeah, it happens. The airmails, like you said, come to mind. And then if you really want to get into the weeds, you have the things that have uh, pre-phosphored paper with block tagging on top, where sometimes the block tagging's omitted, so it's like it's tagged, but it's not tagged. <laughs> right, right. And uh, a lot of new issues with the what the printer will do is they'll buy the the paper with the phosphor content embedded in the paper, and then if they're they're printing an untagged stamp, they'll actually put a an inhibitor layer of ink on the paper before they print anything. And that's how they get the untagged stamps because the post office no longer wants their low value, low face value stamps to be tagged because they were finding as, as the, as the uh, first class mail cost increased, people were using older untagged stamps, uh, or older tagged stamps of lower value to activate the facer canceller machines, and those items were getting through and they were lo losing revenue. So, so now they don't tag the lower value stamps, and a lot of the pre-sorted bulk rate stamps are not tagged anyway. But when the printer goes to print those, they use the same paper stock, they just put a tag into inhibitor layer over the top of it. So, you know, sometimes if that would get omitted, then... Plus we have the counterfeits, which aren't tagged. So right. some, some of them being some of these that they put in an inhibitor. With. Yeah. Um, generally, um, it's the first-class stamps that are getting counterfeited, but if they were to counterfeit bulk-rate stamps and sell them to large mailers, oh. that would be a problem because the basic stamps are untagged. So does anyone have any stamp stories before we get to postal stationary paper colors? Sure. The stamps I brought in today are a set of stamps and an adjoining single stamp that were issued by the Panama Canal Zone to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the California Gold Rush. This set, Scott number 142 to 145, was issued June 1st, 1949 and catalogs $5.05 unused. The four values picture what it was like to be a 49er, one of the people chasing the gold, to have to travel from the east coast of the United States um, via ship to the Isthmus of Panama and then from the Isthmus of Panama to California. Here's what each value depicts. The three cent stamp depicts the 49ers arriving in Chagres on the Atlantic Ocean side of the Isthmus. The six cent stamp shows traveling the Chag up the Chagres River by, by native canoe known as the Banca to Las Cruces. The 12-cent stamp shows the 49ers taking, taking the mule train from Las Cruces to Panama, which was a very harrowing, harrowing uh, mule trip. And the 18-cent shows them leaving on a steamer from Panama for California. The additional stamp that I added was um, was the one dollar was the uh, three cent Panama Canal stamp, Scott number one forty seven, which casts one dollar, which was um, the Panama Railroad was completed 
and opened in 1855, which eliminated the, tra the need to travel by by native canoe and then by uh, by mule train from between either coast. This was the fastest way to get from the east coast of the United States to the California gold fields. It cost usually anywhere from $200 to $500. Um, of course, people paid when the first news arrived in the East Coast. Some people paid as much as $2,000 to get from the East Coast to California. But the, the normal fare was usually around three dollars to $500. These stamps were printed by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and were for use in the Panama Canal, um, which, which the United States, the Postal Service, was active until um, just about 1980. So this was pre-Panama Canal. Yes, sir. But this is also one of, the re one of the reasons why the United States has always been interested in the building of a Panama Canal. It just seems crazy to me that it was less time to go all the way down, cross the little isthmus of land down there, and then go all the way back up rather than just going straight across. Well, in, in 1849, having, you only have the trains. You well, having, train. having been in the Navy and on ships a lot... The ships move 24 hours a day. If you're going, unless you're taking a train, which can go through the night as well. No, they didn't. Trains stopped overnight, too. And yeah. so did wagon trains yep. and any other overland uh, type of transportation. So a lot of your time savings is in the fact that the ship travels 24 hours a day as it goes from New York down to Panama and then from Panama up to San Francisco. That part, those parts of the trip are all 24 hours a day. So that's a lot of your time savings right there is because you're traveling a lot of time. A lot of times you're only traveling over land six or eight hours a day. It just versus, still seems crazy. I mean, I, I get it because obviously, I mean, if it wasn't faster, we never would have built the Panama Canal. Right. But it just seems, you know, to go that far south to go back north versus just... Well, that's, and that's why the mail went that way, too, not just the 49ers that wanted to get out to California quickly. Noisy Carriers. Noisy Carriers was a company out of San Francisco that carried uh, mail across Nicaragua and, of course, went out of business as soon as they built the railroad. That's well, this cool. is interesting because, Becca, you have one that's uh, the same sort of thing. Yes, I do. I decided to do my story on the U.S. 1120 Scott number. Overland mail delivery started in the United States in 1858. The first delivery occurred in San Francisco in October of that year. The story of how this began is an interesting one that many Americans are not aware of. The population of the United States increased by more than 600% from 1789 to 1860, growing from 4 million to over 31 million. The territory of the United States also expanded greatly in a westerly direction due to such events as the Louisiana Purchase during this time. In 1848, two events occurred which caused Americans to migrate to California in great numbers. One of these was the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War. This treaty transferred what is now the entire southwestern area of the United States, including Texas and California, from Mexico to the United States. The second, the second, perhaps more well-known event, was the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in California. This began the gold rush in California. California's dramatic population growth incurred a need for a mail delivery service to the area. In 
The first method that was tried of moving mail by steamship from New York to the Isthmus of Panama, where the mail was unloaded and transferred to pack animals to cross the Isthmus and then transferring the mail to the steamship to a steamship again, was clearly not the most convenient method. Therefore, in the 1850s, Congress authorized four overland mail routes to connect California with the rest of the nation. These routes would end up helping to unite the nation. Mail contractors and carriers created routes that would not only help mail travel across the country, but also, as Albert said, those immigrants that would one day cons- that we would one day consider pioneers. The first route was from Salt Lake City to Sacramento, a route which became part of the Pony Express route later. The route was operated originally by Absalom Woodward and George Chorpening, starting from opposite ends of the route. Weather, Indian raids, and the Sierra Nevada mountains all posed obstacles for this route, and in fact, Woodward and his party were actually killed by an Indian raid. A second route was run by James Birch and George Giddings from San Antonio Antonio to San San Diego. When Birch started this route, he hired Isaiah Woods. Unfortunately, neither man had ever traveled this route. Woods handled the eastern end of the route and hired Robert Doyle to handle the western end. Woods also was aided by George Giddings, who had been carrying mail from San Antonio to San Jose for three years. Woods struggled with mules, money, and equipment. He arranged to get more money from Birch, but unfortunately, before they could meet up, the steamship Birch was traveling on sank, and he was killed. In February of 18... 58, Birch's widow revoked Woods's contract to operate this route and replaced him with Giddings. Another, probably the most legendary route, was Butterfield's Overland Mail route. It was run by a contractor from St. Louis and Memphis to San Francisco. As I said, this was the most legendary of all the routes. Congress could not agree on a route. They were divided between southern, southern congressmen who wanted a southern route and northern congressmen who wanted a northern route, of course. Two routes were designed, one starting from Memphis and one from St. Louis before converging in Arkansas and then continuing to San Francisco via El Paso and Yuma. Seventy miles of the route were actually in Mexico. Stagecoaches as well as horses were used on the Butterfield route. And at one point, this was also the longest stagecoach route in the entire world. Problems arose at the beginning of the Civil War when the Union government banned the use of the southern portion of the route. Southern troops also seized some of the stagecoaches for use in the war effort. Some segments of the route, which still exist as historic landmarks and can be visited today by those who are my fellow history lovers. The final route was a Kansas City to Stockton route. It was very very rarely used and only lasted about a year. In fact, they said probably only three pieces of mail were were carried on that route. The Overland Mail stamp of 1958 was released after a great deal of political pressure from people ranging from congressional delegates from the states along Birch's and Butterfield's route to people in stamp clubs. There were even unsolicited stamp designs sent to the Postmaster General. The first day ceremony was set for San Francisco on October 10, 1958. This itself caused controversy as many felt that Butterfield was being honored while Birch was being left out. At one point, a cancellation, which would show both Butterfield and Birch, along with Giddings, was considered, but eventually a generic mailbag was used as a cancellation instead. The design of the stamp itself pictures an overland mail coach under attack and does not show facial features of those people pictured. The wording vaguely honors overland mail. However, the route shown is clearly the southern route used by Butterfield. 
The stamps in four-cent denomination were printed on a rotary press in orange-red on sheets of 200, cut down at the post office into four panels of 50 to be sold at post offices. They are very readily available for less than a dollar for both mint and used stamps. Yay. (laughs) All right, my stamp is a Scott number 517 that identifies as a Scott 440. Ooh. This is the uh, 50-cent Franklin. And uh, what happened was that uh, apparently an enterprising faker took a 517, um, cut off the, the uh, 11, perf 11, and then reperforated it to perf 10. So what he ends up with is uh, it's, it's a fairly nice-looking stamp with decent margins. Looks like it would grade ab- about an 80. And, uh, and I think ostensibly he started off thinking, oh, I'll take a 75-cent stamp. And I'll convert it to a stamp that catalogs seventeen dollars and fifty cents. The problem was is that the stamp when it started out, the five one seven had to have been a jumbo. Um, so and was to, probably de- decently centered to begin right, with. Pr- so yeah, it, it probably would have graded a ninety J. A five one seven grading a ninety J has an SMQ value of seventy dollars, whereas a four forty that grades eighty only has a value of twenty five dollars. So the faker kind of uh, kind of screwed himself over. Plus, it's got a, and it's got a Hawaii double oval cancel. Yeah, which I a Honolulu Hawaii cancel. They, I would. Uh, yeah, they so, they screwed the pooch on that one. Oh yeah, five one seven ninety J with the Hawaii cancel. Well, that would have been a premium stamp. Uh, well, I, we've never said that fakers are smart. <laughs> <laughs> so. It doesn't pay to fake it. Stay in school, kids. Yeah. Well, since everybody else is sharing stamp stories, I have one, too. Mine is the Gambia. Scott's number 3076H and 3106 for the souvenir sheet. And it depicts the it's uh, from the first lady series of the Gambia of the United States. So uh, there's that. But it depicts Francis Cleveland. For those of you who don't know, Francis Cleveland was first lady of the United States twice because she was married to Grover Cleveland. Uh, she became the first lady at the age of 21, which makes her the youngest, uh, youngest wife of a sitting president. Uh, when, and the interesting thing is, you know, Grover Cleveland had two terms non-consecutive. So uh, she was married, her and Grover Cleveland married like two months after Grover was first elected. Uh, When Grover Cleveland lost his reelection to Harrison, um, when they were leaving, Francis said, keep the place nice because we're going to be back. And uh, and they were and they were yeah so uh, well and it's an interesting love story. Uh, Grover Cleveland met his future wife shortly after she was born. He was 27 years old, and he bought her a baby carriage and stayed very close to the family because uh, Grover Cleveland was law partner with Francis's father. Well, Francis's father died in a carriage accident, and so Grover Cleveland, because he didn't have a will, uh, became uh, the administrator of his estate. 
they were married shortly after uh, Grover Cleveland started his first term. And uh, just FYI, Cleveland was the first Democrat elected president after the Civil War. He then he was uh, actually a really good hands-off president. Well, I guess it depends on your political view. My political view, he was good because he was a hands-off president. He allowed things to go on their own. He minimized tariffs, things like that. Well, people sort of didn't like that, so they elected Harrison. And Harrison basically sucked. And he drove uh, the country into a panic because they didn't have depressions then or recessions. They called them panics. And so after four years, everybody said, yeah, Harrison, you suck, and re-elected Grover Cleveland. Also, one of the interesting things is when Grover Cleveland lost to Harrison, he won the popular vote, but he lost the Electoral College vote. So he was one of those presidents also. But, you know, he came back again. So as to the creepy factor, it actually wasn't that creepy. A lot of people were really, really super interested in Francis Cleveland uh, they wanted to know what her wedding gown was. And, and this was one, a big thing because, again, a president was getting married in the White House. And well, at, you're also talking at a time when um, brides were typically younger. Well, yeah, but he was 48 and she was 21. Yeah, but, so if you but did, you're talking about an era where it was not unacceptable for a girl to get married at 15 or 16 either. Well, it's really more interesting than that because not only was it accepted, but advertisers like literally were pursuing her to back their products and to have her picture on uh, their advertising and stuff. So it not only wasn't frowned upon, it was actually something that people really pursued and wanted to say, Hey, look, you know, this, because she became a socialite, you know, she was young and she was the first lady. Well, yeah, it's like marrying into the royal family. Yeah. Over in Britain. But I think it is interesting that they met when she was born. <laughs> <laughs> now that part of the story is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, at 21 in that era, she was old to be getting married. Yeah. And so obviously by far had... Uh, she was old enough to make her own decision. So anyway, she uh, she is on the sheet stamp. There is a uh, a set of sheets with all the first ladies of the United States issued by the Gambia, obviously for collector interest. I can't I can't see a lot for of U.S. collector interest. Yeah, I can't see a lot of Gambians going. Yeah, I really want to know who the first <laughs> ladies of the United States are. Uh, there are three souvenir sheets with all the first ladies, and then each first lady got their own individual souvenir sheet with a stamp with just their likeness on it. And it was issued in 2007. And then in 2010, they issued a Michelle Obama updated one. And they just recently, and I couldn't confirm when, but I'm guessing, you know, over the last three years, uh, they also put out a Melania Trump uh, stamp. So you could have them right up to date. So the question I have for you, since you've obviously looked at this, does did did the Obama update actually match the aesthetics of the original series? Oh yeah, yeah. They are they are all the same format. I mean, even though 
like Michelle Obama and, you know, Jackie Kennedy and everything, uh, they made them look like paintings because, of course, you know, Dolly Madison had a drawing or a painting, whereas Michelle Obama, you had a photograph. So they made all the photographs look like paintings. Okay. So, so obviously future updates to that series are going to appear to be uh, similar so you could display them all the same. I am guessing unless the Gambia changes whoever is marketing their stamps. So, Mark, you, have, you, uh, you saw an article someplace. Yes. In Lynn Stamp News by Bill McAllister. Great name. Oh, yeah. Washington Co- correspondent, co-inventor of the tube sock. Yeah, he uh, he is he has he has uncovered a story that the postal service is going to temporarily raise prices between October 18th and December 27th for uh, priority mail, first class packages, that kind of thing. Just in time for Christmas um, to gouge everybody for a little bit extra money. Um, and the uh, Postal Service is citing increased expenses and heightened demand uh, for packages due to the COVID-19 pandemic. How much are, does it say how much they're going up? Uh, yes, they are going to raise uh, priority mail express shipments by 0.07%, priority mail by 1.7%, parcel select by 5.9%, Parcel returned by 3.3%. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not a math major. Ah. Uh, does it show the actual amounts? No, because it's all different amounts based on the, the distance. Oh. Okay. So, and first class package is 5.6%. So, first class, uh, 5.6%. Well, the Priority Express is a flat, is, well. Yeah, it, at least that one's generally 15. a flat rate. Yeah, that one's that one's uh, raising the smallest amount. So, so, you're talking about on a medium priority box raising about 45 cents yeah at least yeah yeah Yeah. so i wonder if they were going to raise the price on like uh ballots right because it's it's interesting that they picked those dates you know are they going to well first class yeah first class um mail is not changing but first class packages are oh so, so probably ballots will be the same. Yeah. The real question is, will they lower the price on December 27th? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just so, so they can raise it back up on the like, what, when, first week when of right, January, January When was it going up? Uh, that would be October 18th. So everybody get your Christmas presents in the mail now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or, order anything you were looking at on eBay. Order it now. Yeah. And Amazon. Plus, uh, mail service is... Suffering. I, I I don't want to use the word suffering, but it definitely is slower. I've noticed. Yeah, I, I think that has to do with uh, the postmaster trying to kick the employees in the ass to get working. Because uh, one of the things he did is uh, uh, instead of paying employees overtime to work late into the night loading trucks to make sure the trucks left full, he said, "Nope, the truck schedule leave at five o'clock. It leaves at five o'clock." And there ain't going to be another truck till the next morning, so you guys don't get overtime. Oh. Get the truck loaded or send the truck away. Interesting. And, and so they were sending the partially loaded trucks, and the unions are complaining because their members are not getting all massive overtime. Yeah. And that was one of his cost-cutting measures. And uh, so that's why one of, the thi- one of the things that Congress, making Congress say that, 
hey, he's trying to slow down delivery. No, he's not. He's trying to get the workers off their lazy, fat asses. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to edit that out, but um, he definitely <laughs> is trying to get stuff so that there isn't overtime. I right, understand right. And that that's one, totally. of, one of the things that he was doing. But it does result in, in slower mail times because... You know, yeah. It's there at the do- loading dock, but it's not getting loaded in a timely manner because they the, want to the get worker, the overtime. Yeah, the, oh, they'd want to wait till overtime to, to actually finish the loading. Why do something in eight hours when you can do it in 10 hours and get two hours of overtime? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, by by doing that, he's at, he's slowing down the mail, but he's trying to get the workers to do their do their jobs. Very interesting. And if you have any hate mail for uh, postal employees, uh, it's Scott Murphy. At <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I stopped and picked up the mail this morning, and they hadn't completely oh, finished sorting our mail yet. That is so upsetting. You know, and that has been going on for a while. Where well, when our, we're supposed to pick up our mail at 10 o'clock. It's supposed to be done at 10 o'clock. And there are a lot of days where it doesn't get done that day. Well, yeah, but it certainly didn't help when uh, the entire package section of our post office got COVID. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and they were all out for two and a half weeks. Yeah. Uh, that didn't help, and I don't think they fully recovered from that. Yeah. You see, I, yeah they, uh, I mean, now I'm going to get hate mail. Uh, I do not think that COVID is a hoax, but I do believe it is a scam. I think that a lot of people are using it for explaining things which do not necessarily need to be explained away. You know, it's being used as an excuse. And I am really, believe me, I feel so sorry for the people who get it. I had it myself. It's terrible. It sucks. But, you know, shutting shutting down the economy and everything like that is just just, ridiculous. It's... it's in a way, it's similar to the flu. If you get sick, you take care of yourself, and you know if it's bad enough, you go to the doctor or the hospital. If it's not bad, you just stay home and you self yeah. take care of yourself, get over it, and get back to work. And uh, clearly, with the lack of social interaction, uh, you know the flu rates are down this year. Well, duh. Just, yeah, because. <laughs> Because we're not all gathering in big stadiums and things like that to, or to share. Or everybody who had the flu is being marked as having COVID, one or the other. Well, that's probably true, too. Yeah. I mean, the viruses are very similar. Yeah. On the plus side, people have a lot of time collect, spending a lot of time collecting stamps. Yes, oh. that is true. And that's, oh, the, isn't it a shame? <laughs> the stamp market over the last five months, based on my numbers, and people, people argue, but it's definitely more than 12%, and it could be as high as 30% more stamp collecting going on right now than normal. And that, that's great. And of the small stamp shows I've heard of, there haven't been many, but when there is one, all of the dealers are getting inundated and getting good business oh, yeah. because there aren't as many avenues of in-person uh, transactions going on. And I think a lot of collectors crave that. Well, and to plug ourselves, uh, we are going to have a Nevada stamp show on November 6th and November 7th. That's Friday and Saturday. We're going to have a two-day show here. 
Yay. Yep, and it is not being canceled. We are not going to cancel it for any reason. Well, just like the Postal Union, they don't pay the engineers overtime either, so uh, we'll get to uh, Postal Stationery Color Varieties next week. Sorry, everyone. Now, oh. you, now, you, can, now oh. you can send the hate mail to me. De Rachel. But we have a favor to ask. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel where we are putting up uh, parts of the podcast that you can not only listen to, but if you dare, actually view us all. Um, Recently, we put up a YouTube video on Scott number 596, the One Cent Franklin stamp. Haven't we put up a second one yet? Yes, we did. We put up a uh, Hawaiian history uh, Hawaiian history stamp from 1893. If you type in Hawaiian history stamp 1893. And uh, that is uh, Albert's presentation from last week. Uh, you can actually see the pictures. We put up some very good graphics with it. So please go check it out. Give us some views. Um, we want more than five. <laughs> well, it's only been out for like six hours. <laughs> oh, so we want more than two. <laughs> so please go check it out. Look us up. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. De Rachel. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime. Please include your APS number if you are an APS member, because we are an APS-affiliated club. Can I get APS into more sentences, more into one <laughs> sentence? Possibly. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. You've been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 275. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. This was Albert. This was Becca. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. De Rachel. De Rachel.